please hit like, share, and subscribe. Now enjoy the Practical Guitarist Podcast. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, David. We've had some <laughs> we've had some technical <laughs> difficulties tonight, haven't we? We just burned forty I, minutes going through audio drivers on Jim's computer uh, to uh, fix the popping issue we've been dealing with in the last couple yeah. of episodes. So I have what's new tonight. I actually have okay. some cool what's new tonight. So I got this. Uh, pedals aren't new. Well, this guy I think we talked about last episode. Um, yep. This is my rockboard by Warwick. Oh, right. you got the Warwick, yeah, Duo, nice. Duo 2.1 or whatever. Uber cheap. But actually, the coolest thing is not really the board itself. I mean, I'm using dual lock and whatever on it. And I'm just daisy-chaining the pedals together. But the coolest yep. thing is I'm using a USB-powered battery supply. So yeah. this is just a USB thing that plugs into the wall on a, on a brick like you get for your iPhone or whatever. And it charges up. It lasts about... Let's see. I think it's dead. No, it's not dead now. Uh, it lasts about 12 hours, 20, between 12 and 24 hours, depending on what your load is. As you can see, it's running right now um, as the Golden Boy boots up. That and, is uh, cool. Yeah, so <clears throat> I could go into a gig right now. Well, not really a gig, but like I can go to an open jam right now and just literally plug in and not have to worry about looking for power on the floor, which it wasn't yeah, a place you don't have to... a big pain in the ass. One, another thing is you've got isolated power automatically from the yep, rest of the club. Yep. So even running a um, even running a daisy chain, it's going to be much better option. Now, there's a more to the story. As I reach down and grab the bag, the bag is actually really cool and very, very professional for this level of product because this thing is like 60 bucks. Right. And and you know that the uh, the pedal train stuff's not cheap. So this is your inside. Right. And it's made out of a heavy um quarter of like nylon um the outside is reflective right nice like reflective nylon oh, like a little a, feet it's got a nice bag across the front of it that you can unzip it has a boot and it has feet on it and it has metal grommets for straps on top of that so when you put all this stuff together and i know it sounds like a commercial but like i can remember when pedal train came out and they had stuff like that that went with their product and now it's all garbage. Like you buy, unless you buy the flight case version, um, which is ridiculously expensive in the pedal train stuff. Um, the bag you get is not as good. It is very chintzy. And actually that's been a problem with Voodoo Lab too. I've got, I, the Voodoo Lab is made out of really heavy nylon, but there's no pockets on it. And oh, it's not, great padding inside and the straps that like hold the board in place are literally just Velcro top to bottom. They don't really match have, up. Cause like if you put pedals in there, how do you, it's not going to work. You're going to be pulling it right across your, your knobs and stuff. As you know, I have the pedal trains, mm -hmm. right? The um, classic and the, um, the nano. I have the bags. They're not terrible. Bags. They're actually nice bags, but no, uh, no, storage. no zipper compartment. Yeah. And I don't even have a thing that holds it down. I'd love to have a thing that holds it down. I've actually been looking at um, 
Uh, they make a Fender one that looks like a Fender tweed. Um, but it's not made for a pedal train, and I don't know if it'll sit in there properly. Yeah. So I'm kind of kind of on the fence about it because it's expensive. It's like three hundred dollars. Well, I had so my first real board, my first pro board, like the one I bought because um, I built boards before that. I bought a pedal train. And I had that for years, but I got a P, I think it was the PT1 Classic or whatever. It was a, it was a Guitar Center exclusive and I had mm-hmm. the flight case with it. But the right. Guitar Center exclusive flight case was like, let me put it to you Oops. this way. I bumped it one time and it cracked. It was not a flight case. They, they wanted to pretend it was a flight case, but it was not a flight case. Um, you know, I hate it when things are, are yeah, go ahead. But I, I was just about to say when it looks like. But it isn't. Yeah. But go ahead. Because I, I, I would come back to that. And when I bought mine, I ordered it. So I didn't know what I was getting until I got it. And so, like, I was like, eh, it'll do. And it lasted, you know, for for the years I had it. In fact, I believe that case is still even in, uh, I believe it's in somebody else's hands. I believe it's still being used right now. I, I actually know who has it. I just haven't talked to him in a while. Um, it, you know, it, the board's fine. I And actually, mine was from the period when they had the wider spacing. When Pedal Train went to the the more narrow spacing, they actually could have shot themselves in the foot, which was because now things didn't necessarily fit across the rungs, and it made it sort of an issue for routing cables and stuff. I don't. I, I mean, I don't think their product's bad even now. I honestly like they they're lightweight, and uh, you can get them used. Uh, I think they're really expensive for what they are now because you can go to oh well they're made in the USA right quote, quote unquote. I don't think they are made in USA anymore. Um, they used to be. No. They used to be. Because um, yeah. uh, I believe the company that made them was right here in Chicago. And it, I, I know what they all what else they were making at the time. And it's kind of funny because it's just a welding shop pretty much. But um, Rockboard is German, made in China, right? It's cheap. Now, I know there's a lot of cheap Chinese pedal boards you can get on Amazon. But I've heard horror stories about what you get stuff that flexes, stuff that bends. Um, I don't know that I would roll the dice on that, but I mean, this is cheap enough that I think like, this is this is like Behringer pedal money. You know what I mean? Like, you if you have Behringer pedals, buy one of these, load it up, throw it in the bag, and don't worry about it. Um, so I, I, I think this is this is a fearless purchase, to be, to be quite honest. So um, other things, I've got tickets to go see... Um, What's his name? The guy. That guy. Uh, Mark Letary. Oh, um, nice. So yeah, I that's right. Yeah. Mark Letary at a small club. Um, I actually bought a whole table for myself. I, I don't even know if I'm going to ask anybody to go with me. I'm like, that is so cool. I'm just going <laughs> to sit there by myself and have a good time. Uh, Put COVID sit there, uh, yeah, sit there with your, with your, uh, um, with a glass of brandy, don't even drink it. Just a glass of brandy. I'm not just so you show off. Car, man. I'm just gonna be sitting there like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I will say, I, we're gonna get to the we're, at the end of this episode. We're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of a, a precap. Um, at the end of this episode, we're gonna have a gig report. Uh, I didn't have a gig. Jim did, but but I went to see one, and we're gonna talk about it. And yep. I have I, as as much as I like Mark Letary because I because I love his music and um, I love him as a player. And I really am excited to go see him. I have a hard time believing it's going to be as good as what I witnessed on Friday night. So stick around to the end of the episode. You want to hear that story. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, 
I don't know if I have any other what's news to share. I don't know if you I don't know if you got anything, Jim. I I don't have a whole lot to share this week, but I will have more next week because I purchased some stuff today um, that's that's inbound. And uh, I'm really excited. I've got some stuff to actually start demoing and I'm going to try to get my life in order so I can start doing that. Um, I'd like to slip some of the demos into the show. Uh, yeah, I think I've made the idea. Here's a segment and we're going to talk about this item. Um, and we can, you know, kind of put that stuff in there and I've got some ideas we, we need to talk because there's some advanced ways we could be using OBS for the show, um, where I can use it as a virtual okay. camera and I can have multiple cameras so I can swap back and forth between things and we can actually do like real product demonstrations and videos, but that's something for another time. Um, yep. but anyway, I'm also running behind in episodes. I'm almost done with the last one. So it's where it's worth, uh, it's worth saying that I'm getting caught up. <sighs> It's just a bit, yeah. it's been a crawl. Well, and I've actually got this like I, list of B-roll footage I want to put together before we go on. But all right, uh, I've got some. I've got the non-sexy stuff. Um, you know, more tools. Um, <laughs> this is my so my bag. I, I hardly believe a pedal board is sexy, Jim. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just saying that. Like this is so. This is my pedal bag, uh, or, or this is my um, portable like doctor kit. Like if somebody calls and says, "Hey, I need you," can you come to my home? That's my doctor kit. Um, and as you know, I got the Music Nomad stuff and the and the files, and um, I've got uh, some Stumac stuff coming uh, for fret leveling. Um, the, the Z files that I'm getting for fret crowning are on back order. Did you do uh, that? Did you, of... did you get the radius blocks? Yeah, okay. I got the radius blocks. Um, I talked to Sam, uh, Stevens, uh, um, our, our previous guest from, uh, Deering and he gave me a list of stuff to purchase. Um, and I'm going to go and buy those fret erasers. Yeah. 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 Which I don't, um, and I got, you know, the little stuff, it all adds up, you know, you got to buy tape and you got to buy Dude, this you stuff and you can't do a thousand bucks on guitar tools like that. Oh, like, Jesus. Yeah. I'm, I'm way over that. <laughs> I might have to buy, sell a guitar to get, to get into this business. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, real excited. Uh, should be seeing my, um, my Bigsby pedal soon that, uh, that was supposed to ship late August, which. We're in late August uh, into early September. It'll probably be mid-September. I'm not going to. Um, yeah. And then, uh, of course, um, the Ibanez Q52 is coming. I was excited because I finally saw one uh, in a video that one of the Toman guys did. And they, they didn't have it was the Ibanez people touting it, mm -hmm. touting them around. So they had they had like, look, we've got one, one. And it's <laughs> not even the exact one I got. So, but at least I was like, oh, they exist. Yeah, they're not like ether. It's not like vaporware. Yeah. yeah October yeah. will come around. It's not like um, the quad cortex was for almost a year and a half. Exactly. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, you know, it, it, most exciting um, is, is building a business that's my own business and that's that's probably the more exciting um or most exciting part of this that oh i'm gonna have my own business i do have one more thing for what's new sure. so, so today i updated helix native ah. um for, for our helix fans uh following the show obviously back in i think it was 
June or July, they came out with uh, 3.11 or 3.12. I think it's 3.11, which is the new which is the new software update. And I got to say, like, I was impressed. Uh, The models all sound significantly better. Um, There's some new stuff added, poly delays and stuff like that. Um, I just dialed in a couple of presets this afternoon. Typical stuff, Marshall Plexi, you know, with the with the effects I would use. And I was pleasantly surprised with the sound. Um, it is not the same old Helix anymore. Uh, I would say it's in spitting distance of what Fractal's doing right now. Um, and if Fractal hadn't done their major upgrade um, just recently to their to their flagship product, which I which is a modeling system upgrade or something. Because uh, they are—they're always reinventing the wheel with their models. Um, when they did that, I think that was to get past the fact that I that that uh, Line Six had just done an upgrade that was going to put them within a stone's throw. And actually, I I, I agree with uh, one of our show listeners who was, who was talking to. I agree that they said, and I'm not going to give a username because it might be seen as sort of inflammatory, but they said Fractal is not worth the extra three or four hundred bucks over an HX stomp to get an FM3. And they are informed, and I have to I happen to agree with them. Um, I think Fractal may be kind of in trouble at this point because their biggest competition is still Quad Cortex and Helix and Kemper. And right now, uh, it looks like Line 6 is gunning for them. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Cliff uh, get acquired, actually. Um because he's got a lot of expertise. He's got a lot of models there. Somebody's going to be shopping. I mean, PV needs a product, right? Um, that a, a reliable competitor in this market. They'd love to buy them. Um, so, you know, just a matter of how big an offer can they make? Because uh, I know Cliff, he seems like a stand-up guy, but dude, money talks. <laughs> and, and, and if you got a product and you're behind and you can't catch up, you could be in trouble. Um, so anyway, we're going to start getting into this week's topics uh, just to give you a little, like I said, I was going to give a little bit of a preview for what, what we're doing this week. We're going to talk about um, Flying V Special Editions. We're going to talk about artificial inflammation, um, mm-hmm. which that's that's basically the uh, Flying V Special Editions. And then we're going to talk about, we're going to have a short, short episode, but we're going to talk about three pedals you need. Um, yep. So... And then, of course, we're going to do our normal outro gig report, you know, news thing. Um, so without further ado, you want to kick us off on the uh, the artificial inflammation? Yeah, so I, w- I regularly watch Trogly. Um, so it's funny because, you know, how you, fo- you have your phone in your hands all the time, right? Sure. And so a lot of times, like if I'm taking a break from work or whatever, Trogly's shows are rather short and condensed and i can usually watch one while i'm eating my cereal or you know brushing my teeth or whatever before bed and so typically that's the time frame i'll do it i'll watch i'll I'll brush my teeth and get ready for bed um i'm like a little kid when it comes to that stuff so um anyway i i was doing you know my regular evening thing and i'm watching that he got his new karina um explorer now, um, it's a fifty. It's a replica of a fifty-eight Corinna Explorer. Like that's cool. 
they only made 18 of them. So the price tag on them, and this is not the the price tag like post buying one and then putting it on reverb. This is the no, price no, tag is... day one price tag. $30,000. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. So just to reference for everybody, when Fender did the number one SRV, which is revered yeah. as being one of the most expensive custom shop instruments from a major manufacturer, uh, that was a like honest replication of SRV's number one down to the finest detail. And that guitar went for, I believe, 25000 a piece. So why are these 30? <laughs> exactly. And, and to be honest, because the 58 V's are so rare, it's not like, okay, with, with, that's a great analogy and a great like thing to bring this to because the SRV one had to be made very specifically. I got to put a scratch here. I got to put a cigarette burn there. I got to get so wood grain maybe. that matches the original or is close enough. Right. All those little things. Where a Karina Explorer, it's like, okay, grab a piece of Karina. Oh, yeah, we got a shitload of that out the back. Yeah, here we go. Just take a couple of planks. And then, um, okay, we're going to age it. Okay. Um, we've got a bunch of aged screws laying around. Just throw the aged screws in there. Yep, yep, that's good enough. Um, what was the finish on those things? Oh, it was a crappy finish? Okay. They, they don't even have, like, the Gibson, you know, fancy markers. They're just... Dots. They're like the originals were. Right. And and, and so, so what I wanted to point out, Jim, you're talking about this. Just just for our listeners, just so everybody knows, like Karina is not an easy wood to work with, but it's not. Manufacturers do it all the time. I mean, to give you an example, Reverend, almost all of their guitars are made out of Karina. Just, just put right. it out there. <laughs> right. And that's what I'm saying. It's not a hard wood to get. It's not like they had to source like for 18 guitars they had to source a lot of Karina. I mean, yes, they made the V's, they made 81 V's and they made um, 18 Explorers. And the reason is because there were 81 V's made originally in that year and 18 Explorers that got made that year. That's why. So <laughs> you got one of those numbers. Now, you take a guy now. I I don't look. I, other than the fact that I think his voice is a little funny, I th I, I don't have anything against Trogley. Obviously, I mean he seems like a nice guy. Obviously, got more money and brains because there's no freaking way I'm going to spend thirty thousand dollars. He's a collector. He's a, not a player. He is a collector though. I yeah, definitely not a player. Um, <laughs> but when I look at that, I think you've got a very. This, this is a. Big guitar. I mean, a, a, an Explorer is a big guitar. I've always want, wanted one and never pulled the trigger for a very obvious reason. That it would take a whole wall to put up one Explorer. It would take. It would take up. I have a friend with one, they're, they're and big, every time I pick it up, they're big and they're heavy. And that's the one thing a lot of people don't realize. They're they do clock in at around ten pounds because they're big. Right. Right. So and. So I, I'm not I'm not crazy about the guitar as it is. But here's the thing, though. It really wasn't that hard to do on Gibson's part. Not at all. This wasn't hard. They've got aged. Hey, go because it's a Murphy lab. So, hey, go get some aged pickups. Oh, OK, we got some aged pickups. Um, they got to be these pickups. But 
they were the kind of pickups they were making for other age guitars already. So it's not like they had to source the pickups for your special. It's not like they had to find a bunch of weird... Maybe the tuners? Because ABR1 bridges all over the place. Yeah, we got a bunch of those. Here, here's some aged ones. We got them in a box over here. Here we go. I mean, really, this thing was a Lego kit. Yeah. And, and now I got to admit, this is the this is the other side of me that's kind of making fun of the, the the situation on one side. Now I'm, I'm like, but they're supposed to come out with a USA model, and I'm like, maybe. Um, so because I've, I've, but every time I, like I said, I look at exploring. I go, nah. But the thing is that this is the this is the thing that that I'm talking about is that they made 18 of them. So now they made them super, like, rare. But it's like, yeah, but as soon as they come out with the USA ones, other than being Tom Murphy Lab aged, it's the same damn guitar. It's not even like they aged the wood. You know, it's not like, I don't. All right. So so you want my, you want my gut take on this? this sure. Is, this is a collector's guitar. This never had any purpose of getting into anybody's. These things probably play like shit. Because they never, oh, they sure never were never intended to be in a player's hands. They were intended right. to go to some guy that's going to put in his vault, and they're worthless. Right. Like honestly, like long term, because it's a collector's edition, these guitars are never going to go down in rarity. So they're going to be worth basically what you paid for them originally, maybe plus inflation. They're not going to go. They're not going to go skyrocket. Yeah, I'm sure that somebody, some idiot's going to buy one for fifty thousand dollars or something on the used market. But the reality is. I mean, that's probably still more expensive than the originals are, because the originals are what like they go for like twenty to twenty to fifty, uh, you know, on yep. average. So, um, and they don't they don't trade it off. And of course, the first year they only made like what like you like you said eighteen and 81. eighteen. So the original year ones go to, from a half a million to a million. When did they? Um, so so the next year they didn't use Karina, right? Because I think only the first run was Karina. Um, so that's, so that's part of the silly part, right? So like, I don't know if you know the whole story. I'm actually sort of familiar with this. Um, cause I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the Karina era stuff just because I like the way they look. Uh, and I've read up a lot on them. And so the reason why these guitars are rare is because Gibson made a run of Karina and, and here's the dumb part. They were out of mahogany. And they had to make this special run of stuff that they wanted to have, I think, for the NAMM show. So what they did was they bought they bought African mahogany, which is Karina, and they it was cheaper, so it saved them some money. And then they made these guitars. And what they admitted was once they got finished making the run, they were like, holy crap, we're never making anything out of Karina again. This wood is really hard to work with. Um, because they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. They thought it was just going to be mahogany. Um, and which is why there were not a whole lot of other Karina guitars until I think they did some stuff in the 90s. And you could get Karina from the custom shop and that kind of thing. Yeah, they did They did some limited runs. They've done them before. Um, and there's been some... And here's the thing. I hate to say it, but the Epiphone Karina guitar, because it's not... They're it, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's just Karina. It's not like here's the thing about the 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 other thing about it is that that for the Karina guitars, I hate to say this, but it's just Karina. I mean, it's not. 
it's the way it looks. People like that that golden blonde yeah. thing. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's they, oh no, it's a beautiful guitar. Don't get me wrong. It's well, like, I mean, I, I honestly think that they're good looking, but I think it's because they're unique. Um, right, right. And and I, I, I so so here's my my. I was gonna say I was gonna give you my gut take. I think doing this kind of a limited run with something that's I'm very skeptical on this one because even though I think these and explorers definitely are like a popular instrument, I really think that this is like charging some sort of super rare custom Les Paul thing prices for something they do in the Epiphone line already. I honestly don't don't see these guitars as being as having a player value. Now, as a collector's item, yeah, okay, it's a limited run. Of course, you know, somebody's going to buy them and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, Gibson has done some stupid collector stuff before, like the map guitar um, and the reverse flying V, which were total collector's babies. Um, I just don't I don't think this was a good idea. I think I think they should have just wait, waited until the American line dropped. Um, and, and quite honestly, uh, I'm not sure that the American line is going to sell super well either. You're going to have a rush of people run out and buy them right away. Um, and this is, by the way, this is a guitar that people have been asking for for quite a while. But I think it's a very small market of people that's been asking for them. So I think it's Gibson almost being like, you wanted it, so here it is. And I think what they're yeah. going to find out real fast is they're going to get a, a rush of sales when they first come out. And then they're going to trickle. The, um, the Explorer has never explorers. been... Right. The, the Explorer has never been a big seller or an expensive guitar, with the exception of it was it was uh, 1976. I think they did the first reissue of the because the Explorer dropped off almost immediately. Yeah, it they was, didn't they didn't sell very well. Then in 76, I think it was 76, they they reissued. And that's when Leonard Skinner got one. I think it was, was it uh, King? Yeah. And Leonard Skinner got one. Um, and the guy from 38 Special got one made. It's a fake. And those kind of pushed them for a little while more, and then they disappeared again. They've never really been a so, guitar. So what, like the Edge had, the Edge had one. Yeah. And he got, it from Edge Man- he got it from Manny's or something. But I remember hearing yeah. somebody and, say that, like, it's con- it's contested whether the edge is, is legit that some people have said very likely that the guitar he got from Manny's or whatever in New is York a is a fake. Right. Um, yeah. And, and he got it. That, this is the thing that pe- most people forget because they always think, Oh, he's super popular musician. It, this must be a great guitar. And it's like a lot of times, just like uh, uh, number one, the SRV Strat that we we're talking about, it was cheap. Yeah, I mean it's it's the Kurt Cobain thing again, right? Like, so he was playing Univox right. High Flyers, and he's yep. really the only reason anybody plays Univox High Flyers today. Um, so they're inexpensive guitars. They were really cheap until uh, until he started playing them, and then they've slowly climbed in price over the years. Yep. Um, and this is this is no different than that kind of situation where they weren't really desirable when they came out. Now they're more desirable. But you know what? When I think um, when I think flying these, I think mahogany. I don't think Karina. I think the Karina ones, yeah, they're cool. They exist. I know they're a thing. Yeah. But Karina is really for the Explorer, right? Like, that's the way I look at that is like the Karina, because partially probably because it's so damn rare. Um, right. And, of course, the Edge had the Explorer. So, um, but that's, you know, it is what Even it is. Even the standard, 
Yeah, even a standard Explorer right now costs around $1,200. I mean, right. it's just not an expensive guitar. And that's why it just shocked me to see these two guitars. And what's funny is you can buy the you can buy the V's um post mark or aftermarket, the V the V's that everybody caught to bought to collect for about a five thousand dollar markup. I mean, Hon- honestly, the V the V is one of the few guitars in the faded line that they did. It's like really worth owning. And I'll tell you why, you know, the faded line gets kind of a bad rap for negative quality and stuff. But yeah. the V is kind of like the one guitar out of that line where yeah. you're not going to play it all the time anyway. So buy the faded one and just not care about it. And they look cool, too. Right. Um, all right. I think we've done this to death, but I do have one way to end this topic. And I want to ask, because we know the American one is going to show up eventually. What do you think an American Karina Explorer is going to cost? You give your estimate and I'll give you mine. And then we'll see who see who's closest. The American, yeah. What do you think the American was going to cost? All right. So since the Karina. standard is twelve hundred, yeah, yeah. Since the standard is twelve hundred, and they're going to have an upcharge to it because it's going to be something special. I'm guessing it's going to come in between. All right. Can we do the uh, but not over thing? I'm thinking. I'm thinking that it's going to be between eighteen and two. Is what I'm thinking. Okay. I'm going to say it's going to be in the ballpark of 2400 to 2700 Okay. And, and, and I, 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 let me give you my logic behind that. So now they have the they have this custom run, right? So their marketing department's going to go, you can't sell the American one for that much if you just sold these for $10,000 apiece or $15,000 apiece. So right. I have a feeling that that's going to overinflate the prices of the USA one, which is, which is going to help kill this line when it happens. Because if... They intend to make this a regular product and not some special special edition that they're only going to do for like a year. Um, they're going to need sustained sustained numbers, and the only way to do that is to lower the price. So if they could, you know, like if the standard one's eleven hundred or twelve hundred, if they could do if they could move the um, the USA one for like fourteen fifteen hundred uh, in Karina, I think they'd sell a lot of them, and I think it might actually become a, a killer line for them. But because they're gonna they're gonna make this a premium product, I think. I think that shoot the moon on the price, and I think that that's gonna that's gonna make them a one year commodity. That's that's yeah. my that's my gut take. Um, so I'm gonna write down our estimates, <laughs> so we can refer back you're, later. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're probably closer to right, but I'm thinking I'm seriously thinking eighteen to two. I hope and I'm not reason- right. I hope I'm not right. To be honest with you, I think I think um, I'd like to see Gibson have a win for for this. But because because this is something people have been asking for for a number of years. Um, but I but I really think that we're going to see something really stupid happen and they're going to they're going to price these out of the realm of affordability. Um, anyway, so it's a 30, 34. It's going to be in that. All right, cool. Um, so that is artificial inflammation, which is, uh, as we have as we have stated, has to do with the fact that. They artificially inflated the price of these guitars coming out of the custom shop by an insane amount of money by making a limited run and making them an obvious collector's item. Um, well, yeah, I think I think the 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 problem um, he and most of the people look at these guitars as guitars, mm-hmm. and we don't see them as collector's items. So it's the same as thinking to yourself, well, why would anybody spend 
a ton of money on any other collector's item. It's because it because it's rare and they want it. As a brief and, as, as a brief aside, before we move on to the next topic, I, mm-hmm. I do want to. I, I actually have a little bit of a little bit of thought on this. So I think you and I sort of look at um, the custom shop like a player would, which is the custom shop is for making that special instrument for a player to go on stage with. But obviously, if you look at the prices, they're not for players. They're for the guy that wants to put it in the vault somewhere. I honestly like even uh, Fender's approach to custom shop, which starts at like roughly 3000 3500 right? Like that's player level, but it's really high end player level. Once you get to like four or five thousand, most most average guys can't afford that and take it on stage. That's just not that's just not a realistic proposition. Now I do know people that gig that kind of stuff, and it's really funny because yep. they actually like work for Guitar Center. That's how they're getting that stuff. Well, okay, so my co-guitar player, my band, mm-hmm. um, he has both of the guitars that we play on stage, or he plays on stage are custom shop guitars one his dad bought him in 05 as a as a gift for but his dad was a touring professional so the average musician is not that his dad (laughs) well his dad was one of the top southern rock that's what i'm saying so like that's like a whole different that's like the guy that works at the music store and gets the discount and and then it's like this is what everybody does well (laughs) then yeah but then the other the other one he bought was post that he bought it himself, um, and it's a, um, it's also a custom shop. It's a one of the um, you know the R seven things that around been around a while. I, but he I, plays it and he puts it through the paces and he sets and you know. Uh, I have heard tales of people buying Wood Library PRSs and playing them in bar bands. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely hysterical. If you're going to drop ten thousand dollars on a guitar, you damn well better have roadies. <laughs> like that's you know you should be at that level of player. I could tell you the guy I saw Friday night, he had two pretty basic, you know, guitars and just two. And there's more to to that story than than that, but like they were off the shelf, and he's a nationally known act. I mean. <laughs> so so I mean it's just to each their own right like some people like that stuff and some people don't need it and I kind of th- right. I kind of think that though that the focus of those products the the um, custom shop level is really not to serve people who are players it's to serve people who have big bank accounts um, and I know that players buy them but that's like the exception rather than the rule do you know what I mean um, I can't tell you, I go to a, I go to an open jam. I see all kinds of guitars. <clears throat> I see, and one guy plays a, um, a Let's Paul recording and he has a, he has a PRS as well. And there it's core model, nothing fancy about it. Um, and same thing with the, uh, which, which now is getting into like ex- extreme expensive territory core model, but Let's Paul recording, it's like a $7,000 guitar, but he's had it since it was new. So, um, you know, he didn't pay that. You know, we think of that as an expensive guitar and it's collector claim, but for sure, but that's not what he paid for it, you know. Um, and I, I do run into every once in a while someone who's got like a custom shop telly or something, and you're like, Okay, makes sense. Guy's only got two guitars. I know one guy, he's got like forty guitars. Found out he works at Guitar Center. So he's getting stuff 
I, like this guy has uh, I won't say his name I don't want to give I don't want to dox anyone but he he has like the entire set of super amps you know what I mean like <laughs> you know, the, the the line they came out with like he's got all the original ones that came out when the line debuted it's like why do you need all of them <laughs> but he's got them you know um anyway so yeah next yeah. topic and this is this is um this is when I sort of sprang on Jim. So we'll so we'll have some different ideas about this, I'm sure. But um, three pedals you need, right? So everybody does these like clickbaity topics on YouTube, and I think we're going to do some more of this kind of stuff because I think they're fun to have these kind of conversations with one another. But um, three pedals you need. So number one pedal you need. So or should we go backwards? Like third pedal you need, right? Like. Yeah, let's go from number three. You always have to go from number three, otherwise people don't listen to the end. Well, this is going to be really good because uh, because I like when you hear my third one, you're going to be like, "What the hell are the other two? Um, and I would say my third most needed pedal is probably overdrive. And I don't know how you feel about that, Jim. I, I we could kind of go, we could kind of take two tacks. So like. You can listen to Jim or you can listen to me on this and we'll just kind of debate it. Um, I'll tell you why num- uh, overdrive is number three. And I think that everybody should use an overdrive, right? So like, we're just going to talk about the pros and cons of it. You should have an overdrive in your board because it, it serves a couple purposes. Now it has to be the right, the right overdrive for your situation, whatever your amp is, whatever your guitar is. But basically your overdrive is what allows you to control your lead boost. So when you have to step up and you have to play a part that's going to put you out in front of the band, and I'm not just talking about leads, even if it's a rhythm part, um, you got to have a little bit of a boost. Now, if it's a volume boost or a gain boost really depends on how you use it. But the overdrive, the reason why I didn't say a boost pedal is because the overdrive actually allows you to get some dirt. So if you really want to do a gain boost, you can. Otherwise, you can just turn the gain all the way down, turn the volume all the way up on most overdrive pedals, and you're still going to be able to kick it up a notch. And on top of that, if you need to cut differently in the mix when you're doing this, you got a tone control usually. So that's why I think it, it's critical. Um, I would put it, I, I, I actually hesitated because I was like, this should probably be number two. Um, but we'll talk about number two. And I think, I think I'm going to catch some flack for number two, but I really do think uh, overdrive should be your, should be your number three. Jim, what is your number three? Well, can we can we say the same thing yeah sure um so actually you know what my number three is i'll I'll tell you what my number three is um believe it or not my number three is a delay i think i think that um i mean i have it to have to have completely totally have to have it i i um but uh I have two other pedals that are more important than that. But when it comes to the three, once you hear all three of them, delay fits right there in the number three slot. Whenever I go to a solo, 99.9% of the time, I'm going to have delay on it. Um, and there is some st- uh, chord work that I do that I'll have a delay on, especially uh, if it's like uh, chords where I'm letting them ride, like, you know, half notes or whole notes. It gives them fullness that really kind of needs to be there and um, keeps them alive. So delay for me, number three. Okay. So for number two, um, and this is this is assuming this is a gigging board, right? Because because yep. number two, if it were not a gigging board, I would probably say something like a looper, 
um, just because it's going to allow you to, if you, if you ever play with anybody else, it's going to allow you to play with something else other than yourself. Um, you know, and just trying to like make stuff work without having chords behind you and that kind of thing, which is abysmal. But um, yep. I'm, I kind of gone back and forth on this. And I've actually thought about this quite long and hard. And so I think there's actually a couple of valid answers for, no, for number two. Um, I, I think for me, I'm going to share my valid answer. Uh, I think the second most important effect for me is probably actually wah. And I know people would be like, what the hell? Why would wah be in the middle of that? So think about it this way. Um, going back in the echelons of time, back to New York and, uh, you know, Manny's music in that, that era in the 48th Street scene, people were going in and they were getting pedals and there really wasn't a whole lot of availability. There was fuzz, which is like primitive drive, basically. And then there was wah, right? That that was the next thing that came out. I think tremolo may have been in there and, and stuff in, in some capacities as well. But um, wah was like the next big craze. And I think... The reason why I, I hold it so dear and important is because a lot of the music I listened to, a lot of guys were going guitar, wah pedal, amp. And there literally wasn't a whole lot of other stuff going on because it didn't exist. Maybe there was a fuzz pedal. Maybe there wasn't. And it depends. But the wah pedal was ubiquitous and it stayed that way. I mean, look at Slash. That doesn't use anything on the floor. Except he has a wah, you know, rack mount wah. Um, and pretty much everybody who's anybody has one and uses it for some part of their set. Now, I know that there is a specific subset of guitar players today that hates wah pedal. Um, and they, they don't have them on their board um, and they don't like them. I don't use them every time I play out. In fact, uh, this little tiny board that I would take to an open jam or whatever, I'm not going to have a wah on it. Um, but But in my set, if I was playing like my music all night long, yeah, I'd use a wah probably three or four times in, a, in, in 10 songs uh, and, and for like big sections um, because it's one of those very special effects that you can use for a lot of things. The other reason is because it actually takes the place of a modulation. So if you could use a wah and you can sweep it slowly, you can kind of get away with not having a phaser um, and that kind of stuff. Um, so the other honorable mention, Jim, actually is delay, which, which you mentioned. But I actually think that I can get away now without a delay, provided my amp has a reverb. If my amp has reverb and it's a quality reverb, I don't necessarily need delay because it's all I'm using it for is like adding space to something. Yep. Um, and then if for anything like I know a lot of people are like, well, you can't tap tempo or reverb. No, you can't. But the reality is I don't use tap tempo all that much. Um, I hope to change that. Uh, hint, hint. But uh, that's a whole other uh, conversation ball wax in terms of, you know, why that would that would hit the number two spot. So, Jim, what's your number two? My number two. Is it brown? Um, that's interesting. That's interesting because you you uh, mentioned the um, the wah. Not that that's my number two, but I definitely use it almost every single gig. So um, especially in a band context, I use it quite a bit. Do you know why I think um, it gets hated on? I started to interrupt, but I, but you know why I think yeah. Wah gets hated on? I think yeah, it's right. because it's big. I think <clears throat> all these modern players want small rigs. They've, they've had this drilled in their head. You got to have a fly rig and all this crap. And 
if I have to mount this thing on my board or I have to carry a separate device with me, this is a big pain in the ass. And like, that's why I think that that tradition is kind of dying out. And there are so many yep. people out there like, oh, I hate Watts. Cheesy. It sounds, you know, like whatever. Um, I mean, it, I, 40, 50 years worth of guitar music recorded with the wah. I don't think it's that cheesy. I think people are just maybe maybe somebody's bored with it. But I also think people are looking for excuses not to have to carry it. <laughs> I think I think that's part of it. Definitely. Um, personally, um, I like wah, but I I've been, as I've said, I've had a love hate relationship for a lot of years with it. Um, mostly uh, because not because of its size, but because I wasn't good at it. Wah yeah. is almost like owning. You got to use it uh, a lot. It, yeah, and you've got to practice with it. You've got to learn subtleties of wah. Wah doesn't mean you have to do this all the time. And that's I think that's something that people do when they play a wah is they're, they're constantly hitting it and, and moving it fast where you can do little movements and or you kind of bring e- it. Or you can even just use it like when you do a swell in a solo yep. where you got like a bend. You can wah during the bend and don't roll yep. all the way back and just kind of play some more stuff and just use it appropriately to – um, heighten what you're doing. Uh, the, the master of that is probably Slash. So, yep. And that's you know that's a great um, a great thing to use. So my number two, um, geez, we're 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 kind of getting into the uh, uh, category of what um, what a pedal is um, <laughs> because I use a compressor and I use it as a boost. So <clears throat> my compressor, which which if somebody said, Jim, I use an EQ, hey, that's, you know what, all the good for you. I've thought very seriously about going EQ boost versus compressor boost um, to shape the wave when I boost it. Uh, we've talked about that in the past where um, if you bring a wave and you kind of um, set it so that you're taking some of it, rolling some of it high end off, and well, you're, that, ta- you're know, talking shelving. about frequency, not really like the the wave itself, not amplitude, but you're talking about frequency. That's what I mean. Yeah, frequency, frequency, wave. Um, taking some of that high end off, taking some of that low end, giving it a little bit of that mid range in the right place boost. Um, I that's what I use it for, and every single solo I use, I always go with um, a. Uh, well, right now, my Keeley Compressor Plus. Yeah, I guess you're using a Compressor Plus. And so yep. to give um, – because I understand what you're doing. Uh, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. You're using the compressor to take a little bit off the or off the attack because the attack is where it emphasizes most of your treble frequencies. So yep. by having a slow attack, it's yep. taking off some of the pluck, which is allowing your the meat of your sound to come through a little bit more and, and therefore a more pronounced mid-range. So it's different than using an EQ to do it, but you can do it both ways. I think the EQ, it's like a lot of people shy away from compressors because they want all the dynamics. Um, And that's kind of why I don't use them all that much, but uh, it's definitely something that, that I have tinkered with. And for certain styles of music, like especially music where you're playing more clean, compressor is very helpful because it, it, adds in so like if you've ever played a gig well actually i was having conversations about uh with this or about this with someone the other day if you play a gig and if you played a gig without 
any drive. So the amp is just completely neutral, clean. It is freaking hard when you get to the end of the, like the third or fourth song in like a 12 song set or a 15 song set. You're like, holy shit, my hands hurt because you have to work so much harder to keep the sustain going and to keep the notes resonating properly and just being generally cleaner about your playing um, to get through something. And you, you can't rely on muting for that uh, in the same way that you can when you're using an overdrive or something of that nature. So having a compressor gives you some of that back because it evens out your, uh, you don't have to be, you can be a little sloppier with the right hand um, and actually a little bit sloppier with the left hand too, because it's a little bit more forgiving. That's that. Yep. I, that's my two, two cents on it. I had actually gone back and forth in old Stumpy about whether I was going to use compression or not, because I knew that if I had to play clean, compression would have given me plenty of uh, wiggle room in terms of what I could get away with. So. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I find it big. All right. What's your number one? Number one, a tuner. And I knew I, everybody knew I was going to cop out and say it was a tuner. I'm sure everybody was like, he's, he's pulling a fast one. Um, and so like, I know people are like headstock tuners. So I get, so I guess like I can give you an alternate too. Um, but, but here's why I say tuner, right? So not just because so like and the, the modern tuners are different, obviously they're different styles, but I always go for a tuner with, with, um, with a buffer because that, that net, then it handles two, two rolls. You can have a 20 foot cable going into your, uh, power supply or to your pedal board and then coming out with a five footer or a 10 footer and it'll drive that signal into the amp. Whereas, um, and I know people are like, yeah, but you use fuzz. And I do. Uh, that's why I have the TU3. Because when I want to use the um, the fuzz face, I can hit the buffer off and go for it. And actually, the, the TU3 Waza. And actually, where mine's at in, in um, my rig, I can actually run the sun face even without the buffer turned off. Because the my sun face is actually later in the chain. It's actually after all my drive pedals. So if I, as long as I'm running a clean signal, I can tune. And that what I want to do eventually is I'm going to get a switching board going at some point, and then I'll have the tuner off on its own. Why? So it'll be always on, and I don't have to mess with it anymore. Um, and I don't have to worry about buffers for my for my uh, front effects. Now I'm going to say something that's heresy, and that people will like. I'm sure people are going to crucify me over saying this, but in terms of your board when you have it laid out, because we're talking about buffers in terms of having your board laid out and having no buffer, I'm actually a big proponent of no buffers before the amp. And I know people are like, you should have a buffer because you've got so much signal degradation going from guitar to pedals to amp. And I have discovered because of the guitars that I play inherently being bright and my sensitivity to it, I'd rather actually want that impedance loss. I'd rather lose some fidelity going into the amp where I do want to buffer is the effects loop. And I do run stuff in the effects loop. So, um, if your if your effects loop is not already buffered, get buffers because you want one coming out and you want one going in so that, so, you know, out of your, to your pedal board and then back into the amp, you want that whole signal chain to be pristine. Um, which even like, I know a lot of people don't do this, but if you got the cash, 
if you're going to have an effects loop, put it on a separate board and just stick it right up next to your amp or stick it on top of your amp or behind it and just leave that stuff so you can trigger it when you need it, but just leave it on and leave it with a short cable run. Um, Cause you really don't, if, as long as you're not switching things on and off, you really don't need it in front of you. Uh, actually, I toyed with down around with the idea of using MIDI pedals to put in your loop so you could switch them on and off uh, via some sort of MIDI control scheme and not have to worry about, um, you could have a you know MIDI cable running out to your board and a controller on it so that you don't have to worry about your signal loss. Uh, but that's a whole other aside. The the tuner is the is the main thing. If you if you had to tell me, like you got to give me an alternate number one. I mean, honestly, I'd probably say I'd probably say buffers, like I like I've been talking about here. But uh, I can't really think of anything else that I would place as more important. I can tell you that number four would probably be uh, some sort of modulation pedal, and it would and it, it likely because of me it would be a Univibe. But basically a phaser, univibe, something, and I, I, I'd actually would say something you could put preamp, and and the reason I say that is because you sometimes need to put motion into your guitar parts, but just have no vibrato and stuff, and so having something that can modulate the signal is really really useful to keep the in, the listener interested in what you're and what's going on with the song, and if it's stereo, that's even better. Um, you know, if you could split out to stereo amps, but generally, you know, I want to, I want to find something that can go, go pre-drive, um, because I think it's more organic sounding for that specific purpose. Now, if you got multiple modulation pedals then you can start throwing stuff in the loop and, you know, getting, getting all crazy with it. But, um, for me, I, I prefer a Univibe. I prefer to go pre-drive into the amp. And then that's my, that's my thing. So that would be number four. I don't really think that would count in place of number one because I wouldn't like I'm not going to an open jam with my amp and a Univibe. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> like it's it's going to be there's going to be d- drive a tuner and uh, actually there may not be a tuner on this board because same reason I said our listeners would be like, but you can use a headstock tuner. Yeah, you can use a headstock tuner. Uh, I'm not a big fan of headstock tuners. I don't. I've had some some horror, horrifying moments with them where you can't see them um, because of the where your headstock is at. And at least on the PRS, they don't really mount on there very well because the there's not enough surface area to really clip them on. Um, and if you get a headless guitar, that's a problem. Uh, you can still get a headless or you can still get a, a clip on tuner on a headless guitar, um, but it's just not <laughs> it's not ideal. Um so I don't think headless or the, the clip-on tuners are the perfect answer. I think a, a pedal tuner is is superior for that, and especially one with a buffer in it. A switchable buffer is a okay in my book. Um, and of course, the Boss one. The reason why I love it is it's, it's like it's even got a damn nine volt power supply in it. So if you're powering that thing, you can run a daisy chain right off the pedal. Makes it super easy. So, Jim, what's your number one? Did I steal it? Hey, that's yeah, no. Well, you did, but you did it in number three. My number one is a boost. Yeah. My number one is definitely a booster. I can I can tune by ear. I can have somebody give me an E and I can tune. Or I can I can use a headstock tuner and then take it back off because that's what I do. I oh, so you know. trust other people. That's why you didn't use but, a tuner for number one. <laughs> yep. I don't. So so uh and if I'm the only guitar in a band, guess what? I'm I'm in tune. 
Um, <laughs> so the um, I, I go to the Angus Young School of Tuning, but I come from a long line of not having tuners. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a pitch pipe in my pocket from you know from years ago. So no, oh, I can tune I, my, I still I can have tune my it ear too. I just prefer not to. Yeah. I mean, um, and I'm very familiar with getting a guitar in tune with itself, but uh, it's yeah. when, when you're when you're on stage with a bunch of people. I don't trust other people to have tuned their instruments. Um, and I, I have definitely been even, in situations where they're, oh, yeah, I'm in tune. And then they strum a G chord. And you're like, holy shit, that's not in tune. <laughs> yeah. But I can say, okay, check tuning. Because um, I can hear if somebody's out of tune. Yeah, but but I'm always, I'm afraid, because like the situation I get in, I don't know these people. And I'm always afraid they're yep. going to be like, you're an asshole. You know, like, as I said, I don't trust other people. <laughs> Yeah. I don't trust them to be good human beings. <laughs> I, you know, I've got, look, I've, I've got uh, to um, look at the fact that, the fact is, there's never going to be a, a, a situation where I don't have some kind of tuner. Right, something, right. And something to which I can use reference. And so, if you're going to, you know, if I'm going to be stuck where I have to choose a pedal, it's going to be an overdrive pedal in Lately, it's been my Tumnus. Um, yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, that thing is staying on almost all the time. Yeah, uh, and, and, and you run a Marshall, and, and the whole, like, clawing into a Marshall thing is, like, really, really a lot of people's yep. forte, so. Right, and it's really subtle. I mean, I turn it on, and people go, you know, I'll, I'll play without it. And they go, oh, that's, that's good, and I play with it, and they go, oh, that's better. So mm -hmm. it's not bad it's kind of like what is that uh, it, it's kind of like putting a little mayonnaise on a on a sandwich i mean it's not it's not going to be a bad sandwich but it's going to be a better sandwich um you know as long as the meat's good but the point is that <clears throat> i'm just trying to lay that down now if you ask me to choose number four it's probably going to be a wah pedal yeah and that's you know how do i say this um, when I was at the gig, the the bottom row of my pedal board uh, is all drive. There's the Muffaletta now. Um, there's uh, the Paisley Drive, Deluxe, Paisley Deluxe, the um, Ratsbane, the Tumnus, and the 5050, which kind of has to go – I kind of got to switch those because – the Tumnus needs to go after the 50-50. So if I can, I can shape the 50-50 if I want. But the point is, those are the pedals on the bottom row. Those are all drive pedals. Every freaking one of them. I mean, a fuzz is a different kind of thing, but they're all drive slash distortion. They're all right. coloring the sound in a way that gives it... More grit. Grit, right. Different kinds of grit. But I showed the guitar player that I played with, he, he goes... What do all those things do? And I, I said, I'll show you. Now, I brought the twin because I didn't want to bring the Marshall because it was it was really hot, really right. muggy. Right. Uh, Saturday. And we got rained on. And we might get rained on. I knew we were going to get rained on. We didn't get rained on. I'm okay with that thing being rained on. I'm not so okay with this thing being rained on, especially with the tubes being hot. That's all I need. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I made a logical decision to do that. But as I hit them... Each one, and and I had him plug his guitar in and play through my rig, and he goes, "Oh, I see now. I see." And so he's a no pedal guy, mm -hmm. and 
I'm building his first pedal board. I just gonna say and, that's all gonna change for him because he's gonna be like, oh yeah. And, <laughs> and he asked me, he said, "Can you build me a pedal board?" I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "All right, we're gonna design it because he's picking the pedals, but we're gonna design it and then I'll put it together for him." And and it's funny because um, we uh, we talked. He, He's been trying to talk me out of my three three five since he played it. Yeah, right, right. But um, um, anyway, so uh, the the um, the fact is, he goes, you know how to set those up, so they're just, it's just a little, a little bit of he extra. Because yeah, everybody, he goes, geez, even your fuzz is not overly fuzzy. Mm-hmm. He goes, but I get it now because I said, I said, okay, think John Fogarty solo after. CCR, mm. you know, you know, run through the jungle and all that stuff. Try it, think that, and then play a little bit. See what you're thinking. And when he started playing, he goes, "Oh, I see." And then I said, "Now put that Paisley drive on." He goes, "I already know I like the Paisley drive." He goes, "But sure." And then he hit it and he went, "Wow, that's really. I mean, it's very subtle." Um, and I sit down and I I tuned those to go with the Fender when I got there because you know that that's a very different thing. Right, right. Most of them don't even get used. The Tumnus just adds a little bit of something for the for the Marshall. The rest of it is the Marshall switching channels. Um, and I love the Marshall in that it's got a effects loop that I can turn on and off. But he asked me, he goes, so he was he was talking about his phaser and he goes, yeah, my phaser doesn't sound good through the effects loop. I said, don't use it in the effects loop. He said, I thought I was supposed to use it. I said, no, it's effectively a wah pedal. You can, you can them, or you can't. It depends can. on, and some of them, and some of them really work better in the loop than in others. Effect, yep. Right. It's like but a phase 90 got, out front, phase 45 yes. out front, phase 100 yeah. out front. But if you're going to go into like the boss phasers, put them in the loop. In the um, loop. And right. That's, that's, that's a big part of it is like, who designed it and what were they thinking when it came out? Right. And I, and I can't remember what it was, but it's very Phase ninety esque. It's a it's a boutique version of the Phase ninety script. Yeah. Okay. And um, so doing a little bit more. Yeah, definitely um, don't put that in the loop. <laughs> no, it was not. A, and I told him, I said that's going to sound like shit in the loop. And I go, you could try it in the loop, see what you think, but you're probably going to like it out front because it's going to be too. It's more of what a a wah pedal is doing to your sound than what you're thinking is doing to their sound. And so that's why I think you should do that. Um, and so anyway, and then we, you know, he messed around with the board. And that's, I think, going beyond what we're talking about there is is some people think they don't want effects. I was that person for a long time. Yeah. I didn't think I wanted effects. And then I started talking to people like you and realizing that you can be subtle. You know, it's like when you when you take the salt shaker and you put salt on your food, you don't have to sit there and do this. You know, yeah, I'm still or, learning. I'm I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert at that. Like I'm still learning. Right, I'm still learning the subtlety thing because um, it's like on the board that I've got sitting next to me. I have the Golden Boy, but I have the gain at like ha- less than half. Um, right, and then I have the the BB preamp, and that's at less than half. Um, it's way down at Tube Scream Ray territory, and yep. I you know I'm rolling stuff off more than I'm adding ever, um, and just trying to make sure that everything just adds a little bit of character to the thing after it and that's that's basically how you make a pedal board work and i'm not great at it great at it but i'm getting better and i learn more stuff every time i try a new combination yeah Um, and that's what i do i tweak 
I tweak a little bit. How does that sound? And and the and this is a a little something for the folks that are kind of getting into their pedals and trying to tweak a little bit. Is don't try to do it all at once. Take a break. Your ear gets fatigued. Your brain starts telling you things you're not actually hearing. Because if you I ever walked away, I apologize about the BB preamp. I said it wasn't a tube screamer. It's very firmly planted in tube screamer territory, and it was because my ears were fatigued. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. It, it, I, I railed about it on the last episode. It's not a tube screamer in the sense that, like, oh, yeah, it's a tube screamer. It's got a lot more gain, but it's very smooth. Right. And it's there's a lot more tube screamer lineage in that pedal than, than I had let on. Right. Right. And I think that's the important thing is to realize that, you know, sometimes it's best – to walk away, maybe even for a day, sometimes at least twenty minutes to an hour, and sometimes for a day to walk away and just come back and go. Don't change your settings, and and <clears throat> let your sometimes, ears recharge. And, yeah, let the ears recharge. Find that spot, um, and sometimes it might be the amp. It might be the you know maybe you're going to have to tweak a little bit there, um, but it's more important to remember that you can't get caught up in what you're hearing in that very second because things change and i'll tell you when you stand so i i stand next to another guitar player we've got our amps you know this far apart maybe four uh three feet four feet and when you're when you've got your guitar and your amps sitting next to each other and he's got he's got a high-end marshall-esque boutique amp I've got my Marshall usually with his. That's a very so I've gotten to where I've started to play the 335. That's not why it's not hanging up. I'm playing the 335 more because it has a, a voice that completely offsets. He's got an R7 and an 05 gold top 50s relic um <clears throat> uh, early Murphy Labs thing and I've got the um, the Les Paul, my Les Paul and his Les Paul do not clash, right? Goldie does, or uh, Pearl does, but um, Veronica does not. But to to give a real, um, uh, you know, push against to each other, I go with the three three five sometimes, and that really <laughs> they're literally sit. The cases are literally sitting on top of each other. That case is sitting on top of a of the 335 case but the 335 case has the 335 in it i took this one out to take some pick to do some weighing but <clears throat> the the point is that i'm trying what i'm trying to do is find a place where i sit in that entire mix we talked about that before if you find a great tone at home it may suck it will at suck at practice. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, I should have used It's not will. can, it will. Trust me, if you've been through that situation and your ears are not adept enough, you're going to get, you're going to just disappear in the mix. And I play with guys like that all the time. Yep. Um, their tone at home is awesome. There was a guy that came in, he's a great player, uh, like really accomplished player, can do all this technical stuff. He brought in a PV Viper 212 loud little amp but like had it dialed with no mids and he sounded like hot garbage you could not yep. hear him at all 
Um, was so it okay? So if you took it out of the mix, let's talk about that just for a minute. A I think there's a. I honestly here. think that yeah, we'll do a short, short thing on mints. Say right. when you want to start. We're already starting. So okay. here's the. You were mentioning mids. And, <laughs> uh, you were mentioning you know people who dial in their stuff at home. So what happens when you're at home and you're playing by yourself is you want your sound to be big. So you're like, I'm going to use too much reverb. I'm going to use too yep. much delay. I'm going to use too much uh, treble and a little bit more bass than normal, usually, because I think people sort of understand, like, you can't use too much bass. For whatever reason, that doesn't usually seem to be the problem. It, right. When they get into a live situation, there is so much treble. And there's and maybe it's just that the bass disappears in the mix. But they scoop out too much mids. Like, so if you're mid control in general, and this is going to be like highly subject to change based on the amp you're using. But if your mid control is dialed, you know, noon, that's great. If it's above noon, that's even better on most amps, especially if you have an active EQ. If it's below noon, it depends on the amp. A lot of times you can get away with it. it actually sounds better for a lot of for a lot of amps. But if you're like here, or like here, now you're in trouble. Yep. Okay. Um, when you have too much mids, then it starts to sound like you have a wah or a phaser on. And if you have too little mids, you're disappearing in the mix. And the for, yep. and I see people with their mids like this. And I'm going, and on what planet do you think that sounds good? Even at home, I because I, my ears are sort of like, I guess sort of adapted to know what what I want to sound like on stage. So like when I heard the Mark V for the first time, um, the 25, I was like, oh my God, it has so much mids. I was like, this is perfect. Cause I, cause I like, this is going to cut the mix like nobody's business. And it does. And I'm right. still happy with that amp for that reason. And the Fillmore right. has a similar, has a similar attitude about it. Um, but it's weird because it's still got a little bit of the Fender mid scoop thing going. Um, but like Fender amps, that's another thing that I don't understand is when somebody comes to an, to a gig and they've got a Fender amp with no pedal board. Because I'm like, <laughs> where are your mids? Like, where are they coming from? Now, it's different if you like play only on the neck pickup. Because then you're right. playing a pickup right. that doesn't have any, have any treble to it. And so right. it's going to bring up the mids and the bass. And you can roll the bass yep. off on the amp. Um, right. Whereas... I've seen people do really silly stuff with Fender amps and run bridge pickups and uh, bridge pickup, Les Paul, Fender amp, no pedals. Fender amp is basically clean, like big loud Fender amp. And actually, I saw a guy recently come in with a Hot Rod Deluxe, play a Strat through it um, on the in-between positions. And he had the amp so loud that he had to turn it so it was facing away from the audience. And it was still too loud. And it was yep. like, I put my ears in. I was like, I can't handle this. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be deaf. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Why is this guy <clears> running same. his amp at like, like full out, basically? Um, yeah. So, Jim, you are absolutely I, right when you say that people do this. I have experienced it many times. Um yeah, it's it's a it's a 
as a person who's been a musician, both as a solo artist and, and with other band members, and different as a vocalist, a bass player, and, and the, the guitar player, one, one of two guitar players or one of three guitar players, um, you start to see something that, that people do, which is, and I have this with one of the bands I'm in, <clears throat> where people come in and they play, uh, they play like they're playing solo in the band. So there's, so I wanted to speak to two things. It's your tone. It's the player's tone. I shouldn't say you, cause I'm not saying you to, as a specific person. It's the player's tone and the player's decision of what to play. So, um, like I was talking about with um, Joe, another guitar player, and myself, when I make a conscious decision to play my 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 Les Paul a certain way, or my three three five a certain way, what I'm doing is I'm dialing in the feel of what what is he not doing. And what sonic space can I be in? And what is my role right now as as the musician that I am? What's my role? So, for example, I'm going to give you... Uh, um, so, uh, we did a song where... Um, I don't want to give too much of a sneak peek to the, to the last thing we're doing. So, we did a song where my job through a lot of the song was to sound very... As cleanly and acoustically as possible... And then to come in as a driving force for rhythm and then to share in leads. Okay? So I had three jobs in that song where he was playing solo almost all whole time single note lines. Okay? So um, with the exception of a couple of double stop bends. So for this song, almost nine minutes. Okay? <laughs> the song. Yeah. I'm trying to fit myself into these places. Plus, there's a singer in about three minutes of this song. And so um, that was structurally, I got to let the singer ride here while the, the lead is doing this and then comes up when there's no singer. And then I still have to ride just below that, right? Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> that's that. That's that thing that we did. And and I've got a recording of it. I'm going to put it on YouTube. So you can take a snippet off if you want. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's what what happened was a perfect blend. But I really had to think about where am I in this mix? And so each time I did that, I'm using a different pedal. You know, I've got the, you can tell when I've got the chorus on, mm -hmm. you know, the, the boss chorus. You can tell when I'm riding with just the tumness, and then you can tell when I'm pushing a little harder. And so what I'm getting at, I don't want to make this, um, I don't want to belabor it. Point is that every time you choose, the, as a player, you choose a, a uh, pedal or a tone or whatever, a, a pickup, to roll back on your volume, to push the volume forward, to roll back on your tone, whatever it is that you do, you have to think about what is my job right now in the song. Mm -hmm. You you play instrumentally, so it's a very different thing. And that's why oh, I'm coming from right. I'm coming from guitar player in a five piece where I have to fit 
between a singer and, a, and another guitar player. Sometimes I'm the lead guitarist. Sometimes I'm the rhythm guitarist. Sometimes we're both, both. And where do, how do we get that? Now, as a solo, a primarily solo artist and actually um, instrumentalist in, in a band, how do you look at that? Um, well, actually, I, it's kind of interesting because because it's actually very much the same thing. But um, but it's because I think of things in terms of like what the voice. So like compositionally, like what the voice is, is what's the melody? What's the rhythm? What's you know, what's the groove? Because I because I, I consider like drums to be the groove. Right. And then so a lot of what I have to do as a rhythm player in those situations is to look at where do I fit? in line with the bass. And I think actually the toughest thing, Jim, and this is the thing that I think people seem to lose sight of, is I'm often doing rhythmic stuff along with lead, and I have to use technique to actually figure out how to elevate myself more than I can use pedals. Because in my situation, like I have one song where I'm playing a bass line on the lower strings, and I'm actually, um, I'm hybrid picking some other stuff. And when I'm hybrid picking, I need to make sure that my baseline, which is being done with a pick, is actually lower in volume than the stuff that's being done with my my uh, claw. And the reason for it is that's the melody. So, and if you're playing with any sort of distortion, that makes it harder to do, which is why I've actually found myself playing that song with less and less distortion um, because I'm realizing like that makes it easier but at the same time, I lose all the harmonic content on the top end. So it's just it's like about it's about finding that balance. Um, but the one thing I wanted to share that's actually in addition to all this and like probably a better guideline for people who are who are familiar with like this way of thinking. Um, mixes are in three dimensions. Right. And so this might actually even help you, Jim, um, when you're going through this, because when I'm mixing when I'm mixing music on my computer as, a, as an engineer, um, I think about things slightly differently. So we all know there's two dimensions, right? So there's frequency and there's volume. And I think everybody sort of intuits volume, right? Like that's something you sort of naturally gravitate towards. Um, right. But frequency is probably actually more useful than volume because I know I've been in situations where my amp is far louder or far quieter than someone else's and I just crank the mids up. And if I get an active EQ post uh, post distortion, I'm cutting that mix. It don't matter who the hell's in my way. Um, it may not be the best sounding guitar in, in a vacuum, but the reality is you're going to hear me. Uh, and I've definitely had situations where I'm like, man, I've run out of headroom. Time to crank the mids. Um, and so that's like that's something to to keep in mind. But the uh, there are there is another dimension that people often neglect, and that is space. And so what space is, is reverb and delay. And if you are having trouble being heard in a mix and you can't add more mids and you can't dial up the volume, you can add a slapback delay or you can add a long delay and that will help do a lot of different things for yourself. You can use a reverb. Uh, that'll give you plenty of space. Actually, my favorite thing to do is to use a um, slapback delay for smearing so it will also help me cover my mistakes um, because often when you cut in the mix, you need a little bit of confidence boost uh, because you're, you're out there in front of everybody. So if you can smear some stuff, 
using a delay yep. to kind of cover up your your tactics a little bit, it can help. So that's something to keep in mind. Like that's another trick you can have up your sleeve when you're building these um, patterns and parts with other people, and you're like, how do I stay prominent but not in front of? Use delay. Um, use reverb. How do I, you know, how do I get out in front of the mix? Don't use volume. Use mids. Um, how do I uh, receive the mix? You can pull back the volume. You can also pull back your mids. So, uh, or you can, in some cases, you can turn on a delay and actually distance yourself in volume. Um, yep. So it's just different different approaches to solving the same problem, basically. Um, and and actually, there's probably really a fourth dimension, and that's compression. But that's that's outside the scope of this. But the idea is that like you can take a really soft, quiet sound, and if you compress the hell out of it. You can take all the stuff that like the attack and make everything as loud as the attack, but it won't sound aggressive because everything will be sort of a neutral volume and it'll be louder in the mix, but people can still intuit that you're playing softly, which is something that I think is why it's, it's defies the, like the laws of physics because we don't have sounds that do that in the real world where it's a soft dynamic but it's loud as shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like um, you can get away with that kind of stuff and you can trick people into hearing you, whether you want them to or not. But in yep. my, in my mind, so you're talking about a, a problem with, you know, having a vocalist and drum. Actually the bit, the, the toughest challenge guitar players face on stage is not bass. It's not the drums. It's the freaking cymbals. You will lose everything to the cymbals. All of your high end, just shelve it. Don't bother because the symbols are going to eat you alive. Unless you're playing with um, Phil Collins and a symbolist drum kit. Um, yeah. Forget it because you, you're going to lose most of the high end anyway. So focus on your mid range because that's really where your instrument's supposed to sit anyway. And carve, out, carve out a space for the other guy. In fact, I've even been in situations where I'm standing on stage and I hear um, a guy next to me and I go, and this comes from my engineering background, I go, that guy's got a lot of 400 hertz. It's a lot of fundamental. I will kick, I will try to kick 600 or 700 with my pedals um, just so we can get out of the way of each other. Uh, if I have the luxury of being able to do that, um, oftentimes you don't. So you just kind of wing it. But uh, going into an open jam, you really don't get that luxury. But playing with other people, I've definitely had moments where I'm like, I'll just cut this bit of EQ on my Mark V because. I know I will fit better in this mix if I do that. So, exactly. Anyway, this has become more than a mini segment at this point, but it is going to be uh, bonus content for this episode. So, um, we have our final segment, which is gig report. Uh, yep. I'm going to let you go last on the gig report again because I want to get real excited. Uh, I really should have, maybe I've got enough. Here, I think I got enough tea. I'm going to need something for my throat. <laughs> I am Friday. I had the uh, luxury of seeing Greg Cock and uh, the Cock Marshall Trio in a club. Very small club. It's actually very close to my house. There was I maybe 300 person capacity room like really small room. Um, let me put you this way. 215. So that was the mains. Okay. 
really, really small room. Um, barely enough room for Greg, actually the opening band's equipment, and then Greg's band's equipment on stage at the same time. So, um, if you don't know, Marshall Cock Trio is Greg Cock on drum or on guitar, um, Dylan Cock on drums, and Toby Marshall on uh, organ. So when I get there, I got some other people coming. So I'm like, I have a group Facebook message going, and I'm just letting people know like they're not on the main stage in the back; they're in the front in the bar. In the back, Buck Cherry is playing. Okay. Oh my God. Which is okay. which is freaking hysterical. Because <clears throat> we're like joking around about how Buck Cherry's gonna come out and play with Greg Cock. Like I w- it would just shocked me, like, to be completely honest. Um, so I'm standing out in front of the club. There's like two stone seats. There's nobody hanging out out there. Um, and I'm just like on my phone. And this guy comes up and he's got a Coke and he's you know, having a drink and we started talking about the weather because it was kind of nasty. It was really humid. Uh, he throws his coke in the thing and he goes to turn around. And I see he's got he's got uh, a shirt on on a hanger, and I'm yep. like, I'm like, oh, you just pick up your dry cleaning? And he looks at me and he goes, no. He's like, this is my outfit for the show. And I was like, oh, you're Toby. I'm like, I totally, I I just I spaced. And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm I'm Toby Marshall. And he's yep. like, uh, he's like, I'm here early. And he's like, we're getting ready to, he's like, we're getting ready to sound check and stuff. And, um, so they went and sound checked and like, that was that. I didn't see a whole lot of him until, until like right before they took the stage. Um, so the opening band played uh Southern rock style outfit. Um, I, I'd have to look their name up. Not that they weren't bad or anything. They weren't, they were not bad. Um, I just don't recall offhand. And so, it was a weird situation because like nobody showed, you know, nobody shows up in these like little bars. They sold seats in this bar. So like you could have a table. There were tables and then there were standing room. Well, we, none of us bought a table because we didn't know how many people were coming. So we were just standing there. We're like, we're going to have to wait like three hours for the show to start. Like, we're not going to stand here. Though. So we get, we grab waitress. We're like, you know, these seats are reserved. It's cool. We stay here. And they're like, yeah, sure. Sit up, sit up front. So we sit up front. And um, so I get a look, get a look good look at all the gear that's on stage, you know, and, um, Greg Hawk has this new cock signature amp, um, the Greg, and it's the, it's the one he's got with him. He's got two, he's got the combo, but he also has the new head cabinet version. Oh, nice. Which is is coming out soon. He's been talking about it. Um, and, uh, it's sitting back there behind this other row of amps and whatever. So like the, the opening band plays and we end up having to move because people come in and, um, we're standing in the back of the room. My buddy goes outside for a minute and he comes back in. He's just, he's just Greg Cock is just sitting out there in the patio, <laughs> just sitting there like no big deal. And I've seen Dylan walking around the club already. So I know like it's, it's typical scenario. You know, these guys are just like walking around like nobody's business. Right. And, uh, Toby is literally sitting to my left and I didn't say anything to anybody because I didn't want anybody to like. Oh, I still commercial. I just go talk to him or whatever. I was just like, nah, they leave him alone. Um, cause, cause I've been in, you know, I've been in enough situations that these people just want to be left alone. Um, not this band though. We'll get there. So, um, then the, then they get called in to, for their, for their set. And, uh, Greg climbs up on stage, you know, 
behemoth that he is, he has to lift the microphone like a foot and a half in the air, you know? And uh, he does a sound check and he's doing a sound check and he's just spitting out gibberish. So if you know Greg Cox, yeah, like you know exactly what you'd expect to hear. Now, I know they have a digital mixer, so they're really just calling up the preset and making sure everything works. But for him, it's yeah. part of the act, you know? And um, so he grabs uh, he grabs his uh, new Telecaster, which is the the Reverend, uh, short scale. It's a third 24 and three quarter inch scale neck, you know, bound yeah. Reverend Telecaster with his new uh, cock P90s from Fishman. And um, from the moment he starts playing, I'm just like, holy shit. I've seen him before. Now, Jim, you know this. I've seen him twice. And neither time did I have this experience. Um, And it wasn't the people I was with. It wasn't the, I I don't drink. So it wasn't that. He was on fire. Gets about three songs in, he stops and he talks to the audience for a minute. And he says, you know, this is the first time we've been on stage since the pandemic began in a in a small club. And it was pretty clear. It was like, we're going to take this place by force. I saw literally one mistake all night. And he he I don't know whether he choked a note or whether he hit the wrong pedal, but he looked over at Toby. They laughed. And then it was just like, all right, pedal to the metal. And he was, I, 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 I cannot say this enough. He was on fire. It was a life changing experience to see that. Like that guy is more monstrous than I have ever seen him uh, on any of his orange room broadcasts or anything. Like that. That's rehearsal. Okay. Let's be, yeah. let's be real. And this was yeah, like, of course it is. Yeah. he was chugging coffee on stage, which was hilarious. Cause, cause he always says like, I don't drink, but I, drink a lot of coffee and like I drink coffee yep. on stage and they had like this glass of coffee for him and he was just he was just chugging it um so about four songs in he said he says he's gonna play Led Zeppelin song in the way that Greg Cock would introduce it you know it's a song by by uh I forget what he said but it's like he basically used the the first initial last names of all the the members of Led Zeppelin and everybody's thinking like, oh, no, he's going to play this or that or other thing. And he starts playing Since I've Been Loving You. Now, here's the catch. He's not playing the guitar part. He's playing Robert Plant's vocal. Okay. And it's like spot on like the record. And I'm sitting there going, I, I'm, I'm literally singing along to it. And I'm like, this is freaking absurd. And yeah. <laughs> all the phrasing, like all that. And of course, he gets the big parts and switches back over to the guitar part. And Toby's Toby's holding down the, you know, when he's doing the lead line, he's playing the melody and the bass line. And it yep. was just jaw dropping. Um, other notable events that I saw, I bore witness to. Uh, I watched him do a couple of licks where he bent a note and hit four other notes without moving his fingers. Like, we'll just bend this note and then we'll hit four other notes with that bent combination. I was like, how is this even possible? How... It, it sounded like somebody had a B-bender and then they were like, they were just like yanking on it and then like getting to different pitches. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, everybody's heard, everybody's heard, um, everybody's heard David Gilmore do the thing where he bends up a whole step and then goes another half step above that. Like, this is like that on steroids. 
Um, and I just, I, I sat there and I was like, that had to be, that had to be, you know, two and a half steps. Like there, there's no way on earth. And, and, uh, so actually one of the first things I did when I got home as an aside was I looked up to see what kind of strings he is like string gauge wise. And I have heard he uses 11s. I've heard he uses 10s and I've also heard he uses nines. So I have a feeling right now to do that kind of horse shit. He's got nines. Like I just I can't imagine doing that with elevens. Like ever, ever. There's never a time in my life where I was like, man, I would have been two and a half steps with elevens. You know? Um, and I'm I'm listening to this and I'm watching him do things that I didn't know he could physically do. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, number one, how do I learn to do this? Which is I was totally inspired. Um Number two, you know, how the hell is this guy like not bigger than he is? Because here we are, we're watching this guy in a bar, right? Um, and he's just just so monstrous. I, I, I can imagine that this is what it felt like when people went to see Danny Gatton. Like you would go into those situations just knowing that your mind is just going to be totally obliterated and your face completely melted by the end of the, by the, end of the, the night. And I, he like just continually just ripped out more songs. Less slide playing on this record, less slide playing live. He only, I think he only played slide on one song, um, which which was a very good creative use of the slide actually in that song. And um, that so like that was a cool a cool situation. And then the the last song was like a big jam. Uh, he played this. He played a song, and then they went into this other jam, and I mean, they just the band was on fire. And it's not just Greg. So, like, I know I'm talking about Greg because I'm a guitar player, but Toby Marshall, that guy is freaking monstrous on organ. And I yeah. thought he was playing bass with his feet. He doesn't use the the foot pedals for bass with his organ. He just plays it with his left hand. I mean, um, it's it's just psycho. When you watch this, you're like, this is coming out of three people. Now, Greg has made some modifications and then we'll get to, we'll wrap this up because there's some other things to his tone since last time I saw him. Because I saw him with Cock Marshall Trio and he had the one by 12 or the, the two by 10, uh, the Greg amp. And he had, yep. um, he had his um, Fender custom shop telly because the, because the, um, the Reverend hadn't come out yet. And, he was um, he was great. So- sound was great. Had a pedal board. It's like five, six pedals on, right? Um, and he's obviously trying to fill out more low end now. So he's gone back to the Gibson style guitar with a with a twenty four and three quarter inch neck, P nineties into a amp with a big you know two by twelve cabinet and a head fifty watts. It, I know I had a difference of opinion. Um, I was actually there with Mike Mara. I had a difference of opinion, I think, than he did on in terms of how overpowered that amp was for the venue. I thought it was more than adequate. In other words, it was really loud. Um, I had my plugs in all night. I took them out for like 15, 30 seconds just to hear what it sounded like and then put my plugs back in because I was like, this is just this is nuts. But I think some of it also is the venue, the their uh, front of house system is really ice picky. Um, so that may have been, that may yeah. have been why. 
Um, they don't have a line array or anything. It's just like two 15s flying. So, um, all right. So now he gets done, right? Like he, he has this killer set. Uh, of course, it's a bar, so there's no encore or anything like that. He goes right to the back. This is this is what impresses me. I've seen other people who like disappear after their set and their management stays and they sell merchandise or whatever. He goes right to his merch table, sits down, and proceeds to sell merch himself with his manager sitting there. Or I don't even know if it's his manager. It might just be a guitar tech or something. I don't know. But um, right. it was very, very cool. I know that people were like literally walking up to him and having conversations with him. I went back there and talked to him for a minute. I was, like, yeah, I, was uh, I asked him, I said, I would love to buy something, you know, just to support you right now. Like, uh, I'm like, you take card. And he pulls out his square reader and he goes, oh, shit. He's like, he's got the square reader with the headphone plug and he's got a new iPhone. And he's like, damn it. And uh, he's like, well, I could take PayPal. And I, I looked at him. I was like. I was like, come on, man, I'm going to buy something off your website then. Like, I'm not going to make you sit here and do that now. And yeah. uh, he was he was laughing about it. And I, I opened my wallet and I said, see, look, dude, all I got, I, all I got strip club ones. And and he just starts cracking up because, you know, it's it's Greg. He like, of course, he's going to laugh at that because that's that's kind of yeah. his, uh, his, his sort of joke. Um, but he's just an uh, incredibly approachable person. He's literally sat in the back of the club and signed people's stuff and um gave a, you know you you buy cds and his manager said there he's like he's like oh if you buy all five cds for 100 bucks you know uh or whatever and he's like that's the deal tonight or something you know something like that yep and yep. uh Gr- greg was like i like your thinking you know like <laughs> i hadn't even thought about that that's a good idea um but it was super cool and uh i have a much like i have a lot of ad- admiration for a guy like that that can go into that situation and literally you could tell he was feeding off the grassroots, like being in the room with people that were genuine fans of his. Um, yeah. And one of the thing that kind of dawned on me while this all was going on, like while he was on stage and everything, he was looking at people in the audience who were like very into the music and just like laser focus. I'm going to make that guy really happy or I'm going to make right. that gal really happy. And you can yep. tell like, He'd get really excited when he'd see it. And, and like, I, I know that I'm guilty. I sit in the back of the back of the room and I'm doing this. And he just he like looked at me and then he just like laser focused. And I was yep. like, this is so freaking weird. Like he's yep. in the room there. And there's probably 150 people here, you know. Right. Um, so then we ended, up, we ended up sitting in a booth and I'm over in the corner and I could see him like looking around at other people. And then at, like at some point in the show, he saw me over there again, you know. So he knew yeah. he knew he was who he was looking for at that point. Because like there were some people that were just like really into it. Um, yeah. And he was he was just thriving off of it. I've never been in a room where a performer like and I, you know, I play in small clubs myself. and I've, I've been in these situations yeah. a lot of times and I've never seen somebody that's that like he's he's almost aloof from what he's doing on the guitar to the point where he can focus on the audience and what they're doing it's it you know nick bongers when he was on the show talked about practicing blindfolded uh with some of the kiss tunes he does because he wants to make sure that when he's playing he doesn't have to think about the playing so he can focus on the audience like greg does that but it's because greg's just like on autopilot and his his autopilot is better than most people's ability to even just think about guitar um, when I watch him, when I watch him play, it, you were talking about the banter he did beforehand. 
when I watch him play, it's almost like his fingers are just doing the banter and that he banters like that because that's what's going through his yeah. mind. It's chugging that that what we hear is vocal noodling. It, it becomes a musical outlet for him. And I honestly think that that's what is happening with him all literally all the time. Yeah. All the time. I don't think there's a second of conscious or unconscious time that he's not playing the guitar in his head. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's got like a, most people have the inner monologue or whatever. He's got yep. an inner song going on and he's like, right. he's like making all these drum noises in his head all the time. Like, cause, cause the way he, <laughs> the way he approaches the guitar and groove and like all that is um, he's so percussive. And I think that's a big part of why he's so percussive is because he's constantly thinking about this rhythm and stuff going on in his head while he's talking and while he's, you know, doing all these other things. It's just, it's an expression of that. And um, I could definitely see that being a thing. Like that may not be a theory that may be like closer to closer to reality than I think anybody realizes. Uh, but if you get the chance to see him, I know he's doing four more dates um the in the next couple weeks he doesn't tour a whole lot uh if you get the chance to see him get tickets go uh you will not be disappointed this guy is an absolute monster and and cock marshall trio uh get their latest record get the last record you will not be disappointed if you like instrumental guitar music or if you like blues these guys are the real deal and honestly like i think the fact that he started out as a Fender rep, yep, you know, like with notoriety, because because he he'd been in the tone controls before that, but um, that notoriety is like, why didn't this guy get picked up before that? And I'm kind of pissed because you know we talked about Gibson doing their record label, like they should have been doing that 15 years ago, and Greg Cox should have been being pushed by Fender as this is our premier artist. And of course now he has no affiliation with them. And um, so if you didn't know, if you're new to the whole Greg Cock like saga, he used to work for Fender. He was actually the, uh, the like they're one of their best salespeople for the, uh, the cyber twin. And they hired yep. him to do a bunch of video demonstrations and stuff for it. And then that parlayed into like 15 years of him working with Fender and, and helping market their equipment. Um, and then of course, a few years ago, he, I don't know whether they parted ways with him or he parted ways with them, but it was like a mutual parting of the ways. And they were, he would still go do stuff for Fender if they wanted him to and vice versa, but they just kind of like, eh, maybe it's time for us to explore different things. Um, and he really does not fit Fender's core audience right now. So I sort of understand that, but it's so funny because like, you know, if a dealer is willing to hire you to come out and play their really fancy, expensive electric guitars and fly you all over the country to do it, the guy's got yep. skills. He's he's very talented and very personable dude. He's funny as hell. And he can sit there and sell guitars. And he's yeah. not even a, he's not even a sales guy. I mean, that's that's the irony of this. Um, and he's and he's managed to make a living out of that, which is why he doesn't tour a whole lot. Because he's like, I, in order for me to tour, I have to make money doing it. And touring the States, you don't make money. No, you so don't. 
He actually yeah. talks. There's a video where he talks about uh, touring Europe and how that's a much better situation than touring here. So they do tour here. Yeah, but and that that's why you'll see uh, who's the uh, jazz fusion guitar player um, that like, tours Europe. Used to work with Chick Corea. Aldi Miola. Um, no, close, but not the same. Um, well, I mean, Aldi Miola, Frank and Bali, all those guys tour. Yep, and they Europe. tour Europe. Um, Patrick Yeah. Yeah, Pat Mathi- Scott Henderson. Scott Henderson. And he was okay. talking about Scott Henderson was talking about how he tours Europe and South America and stuff like that because they appreciate the music. He mm-hmm. can go to he can I think it's uh I think it was um uh what the heck's his name? Uh metal player you like that that um does instrumental stuff. Uh has an Ibanez signature Ibanez, but not uh, not Steve Vai or Paul Gilbert. Paul Gilbert. He was talking about he he can go to Japan and so much easier to tour Japan because the problem with the states is twofold. The states is is wide. I mean, to get from city to city is a long time and a lot of money. Where when you go over there, you could pop around. And the other well, side of it is okay, go that. Ahead. They have a better appreciation. They have more appreciation overall in the culture for music that is not, shall I say, pop bubblegum pop. Well, than the United States. True, true. And those are and those are both big factors. But what Greg said, and this is the interesting part, he said the reason why we don't want to tour the states is because when I tour Europe, I can go and do a gig and make peanut money. You know. But he's like, at least they put me up in a hotel and at least they feed me. Yep. And he's like, right. here in the States, they don't even want to pay for your hotel. Nope. Like, it's like, we're going to pay you a band like him. We're going to give you $7,000 to come in and play. Yeah. No hotel room, no food. That's um, And if you've got a crew of any kind. So, like, he's gotten smart because right. I'm going to tell you what he used last night rig-wise. He ha- I remember I said he's got the Greg. No pedal board, zero pedal board, amp, guitar, and the amp has harmonic tremolo on it. He's using that for Univibe sounds. He's got reverb on it with uh, dual, dual, like actual controls on the top of the amp. And so like that amp is so cleverly designed for him. He's like, I don't need anything else. I'll just use this. Like, and he's got like two, two flavors of overdrive in the amp. So yeah. perfect. I mean, yeah. he's he's got it down to a gigging science where he even has a custom amplifier that is built around the business model of, I don't want to have to do any extra work. I don't want to have to haul any extra equipment. If I got to yep. go out on the road, it's going to be the easiest thing on earth so that it makes it financially feasible for me to continue yep. to do this. That's, yep, that's 100%. But like I said, the, the cost of doing business in the States Versus the cost of doing business in Europe and Asia for him and for all of these, yeah, these guys for is so much different. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's got to go, let's let's take him uh, touring the States. Now you got to go all the way down to Miami. You got to go all the way up to New York. You got to go all the way out to or actually all the way up to, say, um, uh, Boston. Yeah. And you, have to, New York. and you have to have management that knows enough promoters in those areas to make it feasible. Exactly, Which, and then of course you have they're getting their fee as part of it too, and it's like it makes it really thing, things ever really difficult. And it's harder to build a, a big fan base because as many guitar 
music lovers there are in the States, there's more people that don't prefer that. And so that's why I was saying that in Europe, he can go. I don't know if you've been. To, well, I've been to Germany and France and Italy and Spain. And all of, It's not as big. No, it's and, not. And the, the systems of transportation, especially for musicians, are much better for over there. And so you can get around. And right now he can't because I don't know. Well, maybe he can, but I don't know what the whole thing is with the like you said, with now, the COVID he's day, not, he's not touring Europe right now. Oh, he's probably not going to go for a while. No. And so he's doing his best. You know, why is he not bigger? I think because he bit, he missed every single big chance. Like he, he missed him. And I don't mean it missed that like he didn't try. I mean, missed it as in, you know, he's my age. I got to believe so, right now he's playing the best guitar of his life. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's 53. Three fifty-four. Um, yep. So I mean, but but just seeing him the other night, the fire breathing stuff, and actually the one thing that he did that I've never seen him do, he mm. was doing like Paul Gilbert shred stuff at the end of it, and like okay, now let's see. Uh, you know, I've never seen him do the um, uh, the um, alternate picking like super fast stuff, and he was just blazing through it, and I'm like. I mean, I, I, I wasn't surprised because he's got everything else under his belt, but it was just yep. like, no, oh, there's one more thing I've seen him do. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's another notch in the belt here. Um, so I don't know. Anyway, Jim, let's get on to your gig report. I, I got all excited about mine. It's it's done and over with. I've, I'm spent. I'm done. <laughs> he's 55. Is so it? he's two years older. Right? Yeah. He was born in uh, 66. I was born in 64. So there you go. Um, all right. So uh, what have I got for a gig report? Well, I had a gig. It was an outdoor gig uh, at a, at a uh, campground in Virginia Beach. I thought it's been raining, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be terrible. It's not going to be anybody there. This is going to suck. It rained that morning. And when I say it rained that morning, I got drenched getting ready to go. <laughs> so... And when I say drenched, I'm talking wet t-shirt contest drenched. Wet t-shirt contest drenched. I was soaked to the bone. So, um, had to change my clothes and you know get ready, get ready, and then get out there. We get set up. We are not under a tent. We are open air uh, next to the pool area. I'm driving in. I look left because that's where all the campground is it is packed i mean i i don't see a single because you got to drive around to get to where we're playing i don't see a single open uh spot everything there now they have they have you can rent uh like cabins or you right, can right nothing is open nothing is open and it's expensive news virginia beach so, um, and they have a bus that brings people to the prop beach proper, I call it, which is, you know, Atlantic Avenue. Big deal. Um, so anyway, we set up, um, I set up, like I said, near Joe, <laughs> we do a sound check, do a Quint sound check. We, um, we use, a um, 
what's the song? Oh, Hoochie Coochie Man is our uh, sound check song. Then we go right into the first song. We go into Pride and Joy. And uh, people just exploded with just, they loved us. And you're, ra- and you're being rained on the whole time, right? No. No, it okay. didn't rain. What's funny is the rain ended before the gig. It was blue skies. It was beautiful. Now, so, for our audience and for anybody listening, Jim, if it had rained, what would you have done? I would have not played. <laughs> no, because I, they would have canceled us. Right. They have a yeah. But but I definitely know people who have gone through like outdoor backyard barbecue gigs and played in the rain. No, you it's are not safe. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's what I wanted to point out is if you've ever considered doing this, uh, yep. you sh- you have you owe it to yourself and whoever you're doing this for. Walk up to them and tell them to take their contract and stuff it up their ass because you're not going to kill yourself for them. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had um, they they make it. It's make or break at 10 a.m. to show up. So at 10 a.m. they tell us, OK, show up. If they tell you to show up and you show up, you don't even have to get any gear out of your car. They pay you a portion if they cancel it at that point because of weather. Right, right. If you get set up and they have to call it for weather, paid um, a portion. If you play one note, you get paid a hundred percent. Oh, awesome. So, awesome. I'd yeah. be like, I'd be like, I, it's raining, but I got this. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, they kind of, they kind of call that, but yeah, you get paid. <laughs> so you get paid to pull your stuff out there. If you show up and they go, Oh man, we forgot to call you. Never mind. Here's half the money. So <clears throat> that's, that's on them. And they know that. It's a, it's a really good contract, really good uh, thing. So anyway, we played. It was great. It was fun. Um, so at the end, because um, we we went on with a Greg Cock thing, so I want to make this short. I'm playing, for most of the night, I'm playing um, Vanessa. She's doing great. Um, the other guitar player is playing his gold top. He, he started with the R seven went to the gold top actually all right went to the gold top oh my god it just the his gold top just screams um he's uh he's got these super high-end um electronics in it it's a it's a reissue it's an old tom murphy lab thing but um he's got all the electronics are pulled out and redone i'm like what's the point of getting but it, it is a great guitar. It's not an old Murphy so, Lab thing. It's an old Gibson custom shop thing. Murphy Lab didn't yeah. exist. <laughs> well, it's Murphy. It, I shouldn't say Murphy Lab. Murphy. Tom Murphy did the the okay. stuff. Yeah. I shouldn't say old Murphy Lab because yeah, there's no such thing as old yeah. Murphy Lab. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, Tom yeah, Murphy did the aging. came out the end of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Tom Murphy did all the aging. It's a 20. It's an 05. Yeah. So. Anyway, so it, it, it's um it's beautiful guitar. It's aged well. It's gorgeous guitar. Um, custom shop sounds great. Somebody we we said all right, we're gonna do one more song because it was the end of the night, and um somebody yells out free. Well, yeah. we said you can hear you can hear Sweet Caroline or Family Tradition, and somebody yell um somebody yells out Freebird. And I said, I turned to Joe and I said, that sounds like a dare. Joe picks up his slide yeah. and we go into Freebird. 
and the place just goes bananas. They didn't expect it to happen. And so I had to have the beginning of that song. I have to have this big open, like, shang, shang, yeah. you know, but the rhythm part while he's doing the slide. And um, so we we do it. We do a truncated version because it was the end of the night. We have to be done by 930. To yeah, but it was nine minutes. minutes. That's, <laughs> that's not that truncated. <laughs> we, we, we did a long version. Um, so... Uh, well, we did a truncated version, a live version. I think the live version is like 13 or 14 minutes long. We, so we're we're um, doing a thing. Uh, we, we cut the second verse out, but we did the whole solo. So um, we we start the solo. I'm chugging the guitar, the, the rhythm part. And then he starts going into the other thing. So I had to go and do the do the other solo part. So then I've got yet another part. So I've got a whole, whole other tone I'm using. So I get into that neck pick. I throw it up to that neck pickup, wind out that volume knob, kick the, um, uh, kick the, uh, uh, 50, 50 on and just start doing my thing. And I'm just ripping it up. Um, we, it was, it was definitely fun beyond, uh, it, there's a certain excitement that happens once the end of the night, you know, everybody's got to go home or go to yeah. their respective trailers. And yet there's little kids in the front dancing. Yeah. There's adults dancing. There's people up just, and you're just on fire. You're just, and you're not even thinking, you're just going, we, 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 so, so oh. it, it's it's funny um, you bring that up because like I've had similar experiences, but I never get yelled at to play Freebird. You know what people yell at me? Slayer. Oh, yeah. So, well, so I picked up a Rain and Blood. I have I can play Rain and Blood, and so <laughs> usually that's what I do. But I just do like the really thrashy part that's super difficult to play. I don't do the the intro riff because it's easy as right, shit, right. and uh, and that usually shuts them up. Um, yep. But it's but it's funny because like I got that at an old Stumpy gig, like somebody in the audience is like Slayer or so. I'm like, all right, I'm getting a little bit of rain and blood here. Um, yep. And uh, you know, it's, it's never me in a band because nobody else knows that shit. Um, yep. But I but I'm thinking I'm gonna learn like Seasons in the Abyss or something just so I can have a little bit of variety. Um, when somebody screams it out next time, I'll start playing you know the the intro riff to Seasons in the Abyss or something just to just to mess with them. Um, because let's face it, nobody knows Slayer tunes anymore. But uh, did, did you see Slayer did a version of um, uh, Carry On Wayward Son? Yeah. yeah, they've also done uh, a version of Inagata Devita. <laughs> that would be a cool <laughs> thing to pull out is the Slayer, Slayer version, version of Inagata Devita. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've been David. I've been Jim. And tonight we've been practical guitarists. <laughs>